0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: I'm pleased to say joining us here in the studio is Ian Shepherdson, Pantheon Macroeconomics Chief Economist. Um, Ian, we've got to say a quick word on the Prime Minister in the UK as she delivers her speech um, at the Conservative Annual Party Conference with a little bit of a dance to begin to abba dancing queen. Um, what are we expecting from the Prime Minister and are you expecting anything that really changes anything at all? I think the speech will
2: be, I'm just going to condense it here, but the speech essentially is going to be a, a please don't fire me. Um, that's really, she has no great vision. She just wants to remain as Prime Minister for and no And she's not speaking to the reason. country, she's speaking to the oh, party. Oh no, she's speaking to a few thousand old white people. I mean, that is the Conservative Party, uh, in, and it's so unrepresentative, un- but they're the ones, ultimately, who determine whether she gets to keep the job. She seems to want the job very badly. I, I can't think why. I think it's the worst job in the world. But she wants it very badly. Other people want it as well. Uh, in the, and in the meantime, of course, uh, Britain is dealing with the chaos and confusion of Brexit because the government can't make its mind up about what it wants, and the EU is just standing watching all this, in astonishment.
1: There is only one other man um, less excited about this speech than, than you and I, Ian, and it's Tom King. Um Tom. <laughs> no, <laughs> Good that was, morning to you, you sir. Know,
0: very abrupt. I mean, we, we usually don't <laughs> talk like that about our politics in America. Um, when I look at this, Ian, I go back to Barry Eichengreen of Berkeley, who was heated about the negative ramifications of Brexit, and he also said for London as well, do you absolutely. share even a tinge of Professor Eichengreen's concerns?
2: Oh, absolutely! It's it's terrifying. You know, the, the British economy over the last forty years has has reinvented itself as a services economy. Yep. And um, and services aren't covered by you know, the Canada agreement that, that keeps being talked about. And uh, the, the danger is that the, the UK services sector is left out in the cold in the event of a, of a Brexit without a proper deal, which would be an absolute disaster. So I, I'm, I lose a lot of sleep over this. Absolutely. But let me say,
1: Ian, I have to say, spending some time in the city last week, I had a lot more people concerned about socialist Corbyn taking over the government than they were about Brexit.
2: Yeah, the people you were talking to probably weren't massively representative of the country as a whole. To be fair, no, they're you know? representing the city, not yes. the country. I have yes, to admit, in- indeed, <laughs> indeed, the country has had ten years of conservative austerity for no reason other than they they was their the religious dogma. And I think in the country as a whole, people are kind of sick of it. Which is not to say that what Corbyn is offering is a, a seriously attractive alternative. But there's a lot of people who would like something different. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. Can,
1: can I ask a sophisticated you can question? Do whatever you like. This is your I, show. We're as watching
0: well. for. Folks on Bloomberg Radio, uh, the television feed. Is, you know, you make a joke about Prime Minister May coming out and dancing. All I did was see within the obligatory clapping, the knives out. Is it like the Crown? Is <laughs> oh, it like absolutely. where Macmillan hates Churchill and it is the six people absolutely. around? Me, it it doesn't, folks. It is doesn't look no. like America. It's, it's different than. It's, uh you know, we hate you, Mr. Trump, or we love you, Mr. Trump. No. There's a British way here that was, frankly, just like in the first and second seasons. Uh, an awful of lot Crown. of
2: people in that, in that room, and a lot of those people who were smiling and clapping because they're on TV, uh, would very yeah. much like somebody else to be prime minister. Uh, but, you no, know, it's not like an American political convention, which is a staged, managed cheerleader event. This is, uh, mm-hmm. this is real
1: politics yeah. read in tooth and claw live on stage. Yeah. John, Let's, how about those Yankees? Uh, how about those Yankees? Big game tonight, is that right? I believe so, yeah. yes, yes. Against Oakland? Yes, the Oaklands. At Yankee yeah. Stadium? Yes. I look and forward be, to that. And, okay, no, let's I, I, to I look, now let's go back to England Let's <laughs> get away from, <laughs> from England and Brexit. Let's get to Ian. Because Why don't you really,
0: reset the show I, for us? Reset
1: okay. the show. Good morning, good morning to our audience worldwide <laughs> <laughs> from New York City. Forget the previous five minutes. Let's do Brexit. No, we're not going to do that. Um, Ian, let's talk about what's happening in emerging markets because yep. it's quite interesting. Turkish inflation is surging. The Indian rupee is at a record low. The pockets of pain are still there. Walk me through what you're looking at at the moment.
2: Well, these pockets of pain aren't going to go away anytime soon. And I think for quite a lot of these EMs, Turkey uh, obviously is the poster child, but, but also India, increasingly South Africa, Indonesia. Countries that have got, or EM countries that have got inflation problems, uh, that have got current account deficits, that are reliant on oil imports, because oil is now becoming a big deal everyone's talking about. These countries are vulnerable anyway, then you've got the Fed raising rates and giving all these investors an alternative. They don't have to put their money into EM to chase yield anymore. They can uh, they can be more inclined to be at home. So what happens is that the pressure on EM builds as the Fed is raising rates, and the pressure builds in proportion to how dim a view markets take of the way you've been conducting your economy. So in Turkey, we've got an authoritarian leader. We've got a, a guy who wants to run monetary policy as, as well as the country. We've got an inflation problem. We've got a current account deficit. It's a an awful mess, but it's not gonna go away. Because and the, the Fed oil isn't story, gonna stop.
1: You'd have to assume the oil story just exacerbates the current account deficit issues in places like Turkey yes, and like India.
2: Absolutely. If you are an oil importer, a substantial oil importer, this is about as as bad as things get. You know, you've got interest rate pressure from the Fed, you've got Pressure from uh, from oil now, which you know six months ago we weren't really worrying about, and now suddenly Brent's at 85, WTI's at 75, and this is a really big problem for these countries that um, that are already running these current account deficits, and it just makes markets more inclined to run away, and it just becomes self-fulfilling. There's
1: some interesting relative trades within emerging markets. I've heard a lot of people starting to talk about long Russia. Short turkey off the back of this crude story. Does that kind of make sense yes. to you? Yes, I
2: mean, it, it, from a trading proposition, it does. I mean, you know, from a big picture perspective, Russia doesn't really have an economy. Um, you know, Russia's uh, Russia is uh, is a small economy, but it does have a lot of oil and a lot of gas. So yes, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me as an intra EM trade. And of course, there are there are winners and losers, and, and other EMs. Some of the Latin American EMs uh, are in uh, are in rather better shape. Obviously, Argentina, Venezuela. Accepted, but they're in better shape than than the Turkeys and, and South Africa's and, and India's. So it's a it's a shifting game and it does depend enormously on, on exactly where oil prices go. You know, if oil continues to rise and, and Brent gets up to say, you know, hits the hundred dollar mark, yeah. then you're looking at much more widespread EM pain and much more currency weakness. And you'll get you'll get markets calling on the Fed to take a breather. The problem is Looking at a three point nine domestic unemployment rate, I don't think Jay Powell can afford to well, take I'm a breather. Well, I'm just wondering
1: where the circuit breaker comes from because the markets might call on the Fed to take a breather at some point, maybe next year. The president Ooh. of the United States is staging a bit of an intervention with the with the Saudis, um, ramping up the pressure again in the last twenty four hours. Do you see any response coming from OPEC and Saudi Arabia to this?
2: Well, not really. I mean, they're they're not the swing players that they used to be. The U.S. is not a swing player. But the bizarre thing is that um, actually the U.S. is now an economy which which benefits from higher oil prices net, because although it raises gas prices, which which consumers don't like, but it raises capital spending in the oil business faster. So just in the last few years, the the way that you you need to think about the US on oil prices has flipped 180 degrees. It used to be, we consume a lot of oil, the price goes up, it's bad. But that's not the case anymore now. We still consume it, but we produce an awful lot of it. And we've got this whole economic infrastructure that's built around oil extraction. The shale business is enormous and growing very rapidly still. So now higher oil prices actually are a net plus for growth.
0: What's the ramifications of a blended dollar index like DXY breaks out to new highs? In this case, 94 to present, 95.5. And if we get a 97 print on dollars, stronger dollar. I mean, what does a president do? What does Chairman Powell do? You're gonna tell me they're gonna ignore it? I don't buy it.
2: Ah, well, it depends how far it goes. You know, quite a lot of the CPI is sensitive to the dollar. The goods components of the CPI are sensitive to the dollar. And the things like imported clothing and furniture and TVs and gadgets are all quite dollar sensitive. So a sustained further uplift in the dollar from here would other things equal, mean a bit lower domestic inflation. And that might be what gives uh, the Fed the ability to pause Provided that at the time this is happening, right. the labor market isn't scaring the pants Which off. Which I'm them.
0: sorry, dovetails right into EM weakness, John Farrell. Dovetails right into EM weakness yeah. and uh, into, you know, maybe oil dynamics as well.
1: Yeah. There's a toxic you know, mix right now. Higher crude, stronger dollar. toxic mix. And yields just kind of bleeding high, slowly, slowly.
0: I refuse to play ABBA. I did YMC you are, come, I, I on, just, come on, come no.
1: on, come on, come on. A no. bit of ABBA dancing queen. Just to set up a Brexit conversation later on. You know you want to do it. You do. I can see you smiling. Tom keeps smiling. I'm in therapy. (laughs) I can see that you want to do it. I'm in five-step surveillance (laughs) therapy. (laughs) Who's put you through therapy?
0: Are you kidding? I got a call from Washington yesterday.
1: Are you in trouble?
0: (laughs) I'm in, yeah, I'm in big trouble.
1: Expenses?
0: No. Oh, no. (laughs) No, That's a separate story.
1: What was the the call about? No, this
0: came from, you know, uh, people with
1: Madeline. We're just on air. We're We're just live on radio. You'll tell me a little bit more. The IMF aren't happy with you.
0: Yeah, with USMCA, everybody.
1: Bloomberg's very own Anna Edwards mm-hmm. joining us now. Um, Anna, did you dance? Um, did with I the Prime dance Minister when Dancing Queen came on? I,
3: I, 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 I just stood up and and sort of threw my arms in the air and screamed. <laughs> it was a spontaneous response to I, a I can, phenomenal visual experience. I, I'm guessing that's not what happened today in
1: Birmingham. Anna, walk me through who this speech was for, who the audience was and the big takeaways in the last hour.
3: Well, as always, she's talking to the preaching to the converted, but she does have a divided party, so she did have to win the room over to some extent. She had a thing to do today, didn't she? And that was to rally the troops behind her vision of Brexit, because she'd been challenged yesterday very directly by her former Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, who had a very different view of Brexit. So her mission today was to rally uh, the troops around Brexit. She she We can come to some of the detail, if you like, but she did seem to manage to do that. Yeah. Um, and she took on uh, Boris Johnson a little bit, and she also wanted them to rally against the big enemy that she sees and that's jeremy corbyn leader of the labor party
0: and i don't care what i care about is in the movie in the movie the crown the tv show the crown the knives are out i think for americans we were shocked at how churchill was treated or Macmillan and all the other players i saw that in the faces of the people in the audience it's totally different than in america how much do they hate each other
3: what the different parts of the party yeah yeah I mean they're, they're quite quite I mean I don't know if hates the, the wrong yeah, word. Okay. Excuse me, I'm an American. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just love yeah. the way you
1: frame UK politics through your Can I yeah, I'll just, I'll just throw
3: in, no, throw in there. the Hammond's the Chancellor
0: of the Exchequer's there with eight guys I don't know who they are, and Anna knows them all, and they all look like they look like the T V show The Crown.
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of falling out. Now she did say, uh, in typical British understatement, I might have given you a little bit of that just then, but she she said you'll be aware that there are some different views within the party on Brexit. You know, she she sort of nods to to that. But what she did, which she said, um, she did uh, she did have some strong messages which will appear to the Brexiteers. She delivered, you know, right down the barrel of the of the camera. She said, "I want respect from Europe," similar to what she said after the uh, Salzburg disaster meeting recently. So she's mm-hmm. trying to appeal to that side of her party but on the other side she had a really interesting line she in answer to boris and all those hard brexiteers who'd rather see a hard break she said we can't have a brexit that delivers in 50 years that's no good to somebody who lives on a border and wants frictionless trade or uh, and cited all these other examples and i thought that was really interesting because that is trying to take on the message of the hard brexiteers who just say let's rip it up let's walk away
1: Interesting away from Brexit, Anna, that she starts talking about promising to end austerity. Is this a Conservative Party in some ways positioning for a potential election?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in theory, the election is not supposed to be till 2022, but, you know, who knows? There's a lot of unpredictability in UK politics. So this ending austerity was really trying to take away one of Labour's Trump cards. They've been able to associate the Tories with austerity over recent years. She said that the British people need to know that hard work has paid off. She was careful also, though, to say that the the debt-to-GDP number will keep dropping. So, of course, here at Bloomberg, we were all all watching for reaction in markets, and there wasn't really very much. And somebody at ING said... Saying maybe the market is going to focus yeah. more on yeah. um, well on the promise, you know. Then we need to have growth, of course, yeah. but focus more on any fiscal giveaways that we might get in connection with
0: that. Annie, quickly, you're a saint. Are you there for another four? or Is it five days?
3: No, I'm actually back in London. Sorry, I heard, I heard you say right at the beginning that I was in Birmingham. I have been in Birmingham. I was there till very late. Oh, I see. But I had to get back to London to anchor a program this morning. So, uh, oh, one of your properties. One of Anna's right. properties. One, one of Anna's properties.
0: Prophecies. Anna, thank you so much. Anna Edwards, you hear her in America, folks. You hear her on Bloomberg Radio early, early in the American morning. And it is and She's fantastic. Outstanding. She
1: anchors the Market yeah. Open show. Okay. I'm in Europe now. I'm happy to say
0: Right now, I want to rip up the script and talk about something that's basically off the radar of all our distractions of Amazon, Apple, Italy, Turkey, on and on. Of course, everything going on in Washington is, well, you can do this with Craig Tudell. Uh, working out of our Detroit operation on the automobiles of America. And you can do this because he was at Michigan State University exactly five miles from the Grand River Assembly of General Motors in Lansing, uh, Michigan. And, Craig, that means you are qualified to talk about the quiet automobile disaster out there, not Tesla the collapse of the Ford Motor Company, down 47% from the peak of four or five years ago. They brought in Mr. Hackett. Is he going to be shown the door like Mr. Flannery of General Electric?
4: You know, the the person to be asking that, Tom, is going to be Bill Ford. Um, so he is... I, he is Bill Ford's guy. Um, he certainly has uh, raised a lot of questions in terms of what is his plan, um, and he's not really answered those questions to this point. And, and a lot of people are getting very frustrated. Yeah. Uh, the last the last earnings call, uh, some sparks really flew uh, between him and, and analysts at Morgan Stanley uh, when they canceled their investor day that was going to, to be uh, sometime in September. Uh, and when they canceled it, the analyst asked, uh, do you think you're still going to be around whenever right. you guys are ready to have that investor day? So people are right. very frustrated. Uh, there's some new product on the way, some, some new SUVs that are desperately needed, uh, but they're late, and the company yeah. is really struggling okay. in this market.
0: Well well explained, and I want to say full disclosure, I've got a great affinity for Mr. Ford. He and I talk pond hockey, among other things. He goes up north every year and does the whole Midwest pond hockey thing, and I think he had a cameo in Wayne's World is well, Craig. <laughs> when I look at this, I want to know. I want you to explain, you car guy, and you know all the other guys we got out in Detroit. Explain to me how we got from Alan to Jim. I mean, Ford management was sainted. One Ford, Alan Mulally, everything was wonderful. What happened?
4: Well, one of his big uh, jobs toward the end of his tenure, Alan Mulally, was was to. To pick his successor, and and played a, a big role in that, and uh, you know there was a, really a, it it was between uh, Mark Fields and uh you know a, another uh insider within the company joe henricks and and yeah. the company went with mark fields and mark struggled um I, I think you know he he uh uh did not do well the the share price uh you know uh, d- like really lagged uh, they had uh, some real trouble with with making sure that they kept the the product lines uh up to date and And he was shown the door uh, very quickly. So, uh, you know, it was from there we we, uh, go back outside and it really seemed like Bill Ford was kind of trying to pull another Mulally. He went outside his company. uh, Let's bring in uh, somebody who who hasn't been at Ford. uh, And, you know, we we. Can recall that Mulally came from Boeing, um, and and Hackett was viewed as uh, sort of yeah. a turnaround guy. He came from Steelcase, the furniture company, and there was some thought that okay, you know, I can I can bring in somebody with a fresh perspective. Uh, Alan obviously uh, brought a fresh perspective to this company, and, and that paid huge dividends. Uh, but so far, right. we have not at all seen the sort of level of, of success that we saw uh, from from Alan Mulally, uh, you know, when he was at Ford.
0: But the new business plan, you know, my study of this is, and if you're just joining us, so it's Craig Trudell with us. He's uh, with Bloomberg and just definitive on not so much the gossip of Detroit, but just the the leadership and the human condition of Detroit. Come on, it was one Ford. Mulally had a 5 a.m. meeting. Everybody got on board. Everybody was on the same page page per the morgan stanley conference call is anybody on the hackett page because i don't you know not that i'm an expert but i don't see it he's he is original to be kind moving from steel case and and craig you know what everybody's saying how can you move from making file cabinets over to running a global automobile company with 7,000 parts per car how can you do that
4: yeah, well, I, I think I think it's really a question of, of whether you know whether this was the right uh, guy to bring in when the company had some real sort of nuts and bolts issues of of product being behind schedule, uh, needing needing to uh, update uh, the SUV lineup deciding on whether or not to to play in the car business obviously they've decided not to do that going forward at least, at least here in north america okay but uh, what's
0: a, stop there what's a 2019 fusion what's a 2018 c max a 2019 mustang i mean they say they're not in the car business but they are in the car
4: business well everything except the mustang is going to be going away so those those uh, the the sedans in the lineup, uh, with the exception okay. of the the Mustang muscle car, will be phased out. They've even you know started to phase out the advertising of some of the models that, to your point, are still going to remain on the market. Uh, but really, they're turning their attention to SUVs. <laughs> but but really, with Hackett, I mean, he, he came in and his background, to the extent that he had one with Ford, was with their smart mu- mobility unit, and that is really sort of a, a big think. Uh, you know, sort of uh, what is the future going to look like? Uh, uh, you know, play on on Ford's part, and, and, and con- guess what? No one cares, right? <laughs> right. Well, and he's continued to to sort of take this, you know, big sort of universal uh, step right. back look at where the the future is going to be in terms of mobility and and oh, um, stop you know, it. shared autonomous. They, stop and- it! You're going to drive me nuts. This is,
0: look, I do the interview. You don't, Craig. Yes. Listen to me. It's real simple. Shields was fancy. He did all the fit and finish. Mullally was the god. They came out with a flex, which is the only Ford I see in the island of man. <laughs> (laughs) Manhattan, as you said, they desperately need an SUV and they got a CEO doing tech babble.
4: Right. Right. Yeah, that that I think gets to it and and cuts to the chase. I mean, when when uh, Jim Hackett made an appearance at CES earlier this year, I think a lot of people just sort of left his presentation scratching their heads. And so if that's any indication of the the kind of leader he is internally at Ford, that that has a a lot to do with the problem. Al
0: from New Jersey just emails in. And could you please ask him what Mr. Hackett's reception is going to be? at the North American International Auto Show how is he going to be greeted I saw Marchion once when I was at the North American International Auto Show and he was greeted like a god same with Malali. likes does anybody care if Hackett shows up at the North American International Auto Show
4: he definitely does not have the star power that a Marchione did, okay. that that a Mulally did, and he's not he's not you know a car guy in the sense of the world word. Uh, obviously, that's a phrase that's overused in Detroit, but uh, you know he is he yeah. is a big thinker. He's sort okay. of uh, professorial, and he's yeah. not the one to get down into uh, V six right. and, and uh, horsepower and so forth.
0: Yield six point five two percent. When do they cut the dividend? Thursday or is it in November? I'm kidding.
4: Uh, we <laughs> we asked the CFO uh, precisely this question because the dividend yield uh, has been soaring. Uh, it is a, a very rich payout. Right. But Im- importantly, it's what the Ford family lives off of. Right. Right. So they're going to hold on for dear life to that dividend.
0: That's well said. This was brilliant. Craig Trudeau, thank you so much. One of the books of joy of the last five years, and this is a serious book uh, to be read and considered chapter by chapter, is Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy. It was a terrific success with a huge resonance. Chapters like Confronting the Competition, How a Strong Dollar is Hurt how to think about economic competitiveness, another important chapter. And it can only be Ted Alden of the Council on Foreign Relations. I can't say enough about failure to adjust. So you've got to write a new epilogue, maybe a new prologue. How do you rewrite it after USMCA?
5: Well, you know, we will have to see. I I still think we're at the midpoint of all of this. I think... uh the president has shown that, that he's able to do at least some of what he said he could do, which is use tariffs and the threat of tariffs to force changes in trade agreements. Um, the big enchilada, of course, is China, and we don't know how that one's yeah. going to play out. So I think I'm going to hold off before I write another Okay. Letter. Prologue
0: or epilogue? Okay, beach reading 2019. I can see it. I can see it already. Now you, I could be like a girl magnet if I was reading failure to adjust <laughs> on the beach. Ted, great. Does USMCA? USMCA. Save us, does Ted. It, does it mean Canada and Mexico lost?
5: Well, you know, in the narrow confines of the negotiation, yes. I mean, Canada and Mexico didn't really get any of the changes that they particularly wanted in the deal. They're happy with some of the stuff that was brought over from the TPP, like the new rules on digital commerce. So they're happy with that. Canada didn't get it. wanted a bunch of these, you know, progressive changes to the agreement. It wanted to expand temporary immigration in the United States under the TNVs. It wanted additional access to U.S. government procurement. It didn't get any of those things mexico made some moderately significant concessions canada very few at the end of the day i think they're both pretty happy with it but but it was definitely tilted in the direction that the u.s wanted to tilt it
6: ted alden can you speak to the issue of future negotiations because in the actual text of usmca apparently each of the individual countries must give 30 days notice to their partners if they are to negotiate a free trade agreement with what is described as a, quote, non-market economy. What do you make of that? Yeah,
5: this is causing some controversy. I think it was one of the elements of the agreement that surprised all of us who were watching it pretty closely. Does this mean China? Of course, yeah, of course it means China. And, and you know, the Canadians have, have talked about the idea of doing a free trade agreement with China. Prime Minister Trudeau has sort of done some preliminary discussions with uh, his counterparts in China on this. I think this is a kind of preemptive strike by the U.S. to say we don't want to see Canada or Mexico do a free trade agreement with China because that could complicate our dealings with China. I mean, the non-market economy stuff has a little wiggle room because the Chinese, of course, have taken a case to the WTO saying they should no longer be considered a non-market economy. And if they win that case, I suppose they wouldn't fall under this clause. But we'll see how it plays out. It was it was an interesting addition to the agreement, to be sure.
4: Do you believe
6: that the United States is trying to put together its own free trade bloc in North America?
5: I mean, I don't think, you know, the, the the new USMCA is any more of a block than the old NAFTA was. But I do think what the administration is doing is trying to kick off these deals one by one. You know, Korea, now Canada and Mexico, we're going to see what happens with Japan yeah. and Europe. And then really turn uh, everything on the Chinese with with. with uh,
0: Okay, well let's get over to China then. I mean, we've got the happy, you know, cross border in Canada and we go to Michael McKee jets up to Canada, Michael McKee jets down to uh, Mexico, but as you say, everything hinges on China. Give us the Ted Alden update on is is there a dialogue with China start with that.
5: Well, at the moment not really. You know, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin keeps trying to restart it and then the president announces new tariffs and the Chinese say we can't negotiate. With a gun to our head, you know, my, you know, here, here's my prediction, and you can come back, you know, we can come back in however long and see whether I'm right or not. I think we'll know that the negotiations are serious when U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer gets put in charge. He was the guy who brought home this new NAFTA deal. He's going to lead the talks with Japan. He's the serious negotiator in this administration. As long as Mnuchin is in charge of the China file, I think it goes nowhere. And the president was pretty clear in his press conference on Monday, he's not quite ready to talk to the Chinese yet. He wants to turn up the heat a bit higher. That's a that's a dangerous game, but, but that's the one that, uh, that he's playing.
6: Ted Alden, um, along with uh, the former Michigan Governor John Engler and former U.S. Secretary of Commerce Penny Pritzker, you helped to produce a report called "The Work Ahead: Machines, Skills, and U.S. Leadership in the 21st Century." Would you revise anything in that book currently, based on what you know?
5: No, and 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 I'm, you know, I've been very pleased with the reception uh, to that uh, that report, and Secretary Pritzker in particular has just put a tremendous amount of energy into promoting this. Uh, Governor Angler was, you know, tied up as. Interim President of Michigan State University, though he's done some great stuff with it, too. It's really about the, the current and coming impact of technology on the workplace. And the broader mm-hmm. message here is we have not done a very good job as a country at helping Americans succeed in the face of these very rapid economic changes, be it the pressures of global competition or yeah, the pressure okay. of technology. And that's just going to get worse. And, okay. and, and we laid that out in the report. I think it's still... Pretty current and valid. okay,
0: you sound like Brad Long and Danny Roderick. When's that change? I mean, you guys have all identified that labor in America got taken to the cleaners on NAFTA. When does this get fixed?
5: I don't know exactly how you know my guru on this stuff is a guy named Richard Baldwin, who's a trade economist at uh, in Geneva. His book, the 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 ah, I'm going to forget the name, the Great Convergence, something like that. i um, sorry, Richard. Uh, points to a real change around 1990 as a result of the rise yeah. of, of information technology that made it possible for multinational companies to create these global supply chains, locate factories with very advanced technologies right. in low wage countries. That was a big yeah. big shift, and and I think. You know, if you look at if if you look, that was the point at which you know uh, wages, living standards started to grow in the developing world, particularly China, which is a great thing. But they really stagnated in the advanced economies, and I think we're still trying to figure out how to adjust to that change, which really kind of kicked in around 1990. Yeah, okay. You know coincident with nafta not yeah. caused particularly by nafta
0: interesting ted alden thank you for the briefing. important failure to adjust how americans got left behind in the global economy and an update here as we see us m uh from the Mr. council Alden's, on foreign relations well, the council on foreign relations we should say is rather- the David Rubenstein Peer-to-Peer Preview, it is brought to you by Wells Fargo Technology Banking. Wells Fargo helps business leaders find their moments of truth. A little outside perspective can create a lot of clarity. With us now, David Rubenstein, who's done just such a wonderful job of going deeper, wonderful conversations. And again, David, people still talking about your effort with Mr. Bezos of Amazon. Uh, David, it's always important to interview somebody who started out in the William Morris mailroom. It is something legendary right. about Los Angeles, isn't it?
7: I never understood how one can start in a mailroom and all of a sudden wind up a few years later running a major studio. But apparently uh, by being in the mailroom, you get a lot of information and contacts. So Barry Diller is one of those people. He started the mailroom. He dropped out of UCLA after just a few weeks and never completed college, worked in the mailroom, ultimately went to ABC, became the head of ABC Entertainment, and then at age 32, the head of Paramount Pictures, and then after that, created Fox Television, and after that, created IAC, Interactive uh, Company uh, Corporation, which does uh, enormous amount of Internet-related companies and now has a very, very high market value. Had you invested, uh, he, in, he put in $250 million into IAC, it now has a market value. Uh, with all the companies together, about $57 billion.
0: You, you were an expert at this, and that the distinctive feature of Mr. Diller's Wikipedia and what we know about him in New York is he's a guy that's moved from this to this to this. By definition, David, you have to fail along the way. What was the Diller failure that stands out among the many successes?
7: Well, he would say that he had he failed in, in, in uh, everything he did at ABC, everything he did at Paramount didn't work. A lot of things that worked, uh, uh, what he would give other people credit for as well. I would say that he didn't think he had succeeded at being a principal. He was working for other people at, at ABC, Paramount, and at Fox. And ultimately, he said to Rupert Murdoch, I'd like to be more of a principal here. And Rupert Murdoch said, there's only one principal in this company, and it's me. And so at the age of 49, he left. Uh, taking some of the the gains he had realized, and then ultimately figured out what he wanted to do as a principal and created IAC, and and, and it's a very big success. So I think he had not failed, but he wanted to be a principal, and at the age of 49 he began it. He's now in his 70s and obviously very, very successful financially and uh, and professionally.
6: David Rubenstein, in your conversations with Barry Diller, did something in terms of his intuition come across, his ability to intuit what would make Good programming, good movies, good entertainment?
7: He had the same perspective to some extent as uh, as Jeff Bezos. Intuition is much more important than maybe detailed analysis. So he just felt he had a pretty good sense of what would work. Uh, he wouldn't put his finger on any one thing. But I, I asked him why he was um, you know, so well-versed uh, in so many different areas. And he said even though he dropped out of college, he had always been a, a reader. He loved reading. Reading was an important part of his life. And, and, and as we all know, he's a very articulate person, a very good uh, uh, user of words, and I think that people really respect his intellect. And I, I think he, would, he wouldn't want to brag and say that his intellect is greater than other people. He, he, he didn't say that, but my sense is that his <clears throat> intellect is yeah. just very, very high and he just has a very good way of reading people.
6: All right, if he has a very good way of reading people, he's also survived in the world of talent and Hollywood. Uh, does that also require a bit of a thick skin?
7: It does. Uh, Hollywood is not for the faint of heart. Um, it makes Washington look like a you know um, a playground to some extent in some ways. Um, but I think that uh, the most interesting thing I thought he said in the end when I asked him, what about the legacy, what would he say is his greatest legacy, his greatest achievement? And you have all these wonderful things he did. He said he thought his greatest legacy was his marriage. And he married in 2001 to a very famous uh, fashion designer, Diane von Furstenberg, and together they've obviously created a terrific life, but they've also been very involved in philanthropy, uh, early signers of the Giving Pledge, and as you may know, in New York, he's helping to create a a, a park off of one of the, the piers on the lower uh, well, west side.
0: I wanted to talk about that, David. I mean, you're known for your philanthropy to America, your immense and incalculable con- con- contribution to the Library of Congress. Barry Diller's changed the landscape of New York.
7: That's quite yes. a statement. Yes, there was an abandoned uh, kind of rail line, and he and his wife put a well was abandoned for quite yeah. some time. And he and his wife helped with a very talented architect, Liz Diller, create a uh, the High Line where people can have a kind of a park along a railway, and that inspired him, I think, to want to create a park as well off of the pier that uh, yeah. that now exists in the Lower West Side. So he's, you know, a person who who has succeeded in business, succeeded in, in marriage, succeeded in philanthropy, yeah. and I think uh, quite impressive. And the story is, uh, you know, he gets emotional at times talking about various things, but uh, I thought it was quite compelling.
6: Does he present uh, as someone who goes his own way regardless of what is going on around him, that he's able to maintain that level of intense focus?
7: Yes. Uh, You don't become successful in so many different areas by just going along with the conventional wisdom. To be a leader, you have to do things on your own and things that other people tell you can't be done. So, for example, he created the ABC Movie of the Week. Well, people may not remember that now, but for a long time that was a very novel thing, having a fresh movie every week created just for television. Uh, He also greenlit uh, so many of the best-known movies uh, of the Paramount era when he was there, like Raiders of the Lost Ark and so forth. It did and, okay. uh, yeah. That did okay. That did pretty well, that yes. That did pretty well. <laughs> I, and and maybe, uh, maybe
6: your favorite, is it? Is it Saturday Night Fever? No, I
7: don't know. Saturday, Saturday Night Fever was one of his. Yeah. Also, um, Grease. Uh, Terms of Endearment, Grease. Um, he had a lot of great movies. He wouldn't say it was all his doing, but he obviously was the person in charge, and hadn't worked out, he would have been blamed.
6: Taking responsibility. Did he talk about his uh, parking, his driving habits in the city of New York? He's kind of famous for that.
7: Um, he has a. He, he likes to drive fast. He likes. Has, he has some sports cars, and he likes to drive barefoot. Um, yeah. I guess he he feels that gives him a greater sense of control or something. But um, so he's uh, a pretty good driver, I guess. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know how many parking tickets he's got or speeding tickets. He didn't, we didn't go into that.
0: David, Yankees or Oakland? New York so or Oakland?
7: Oh, I, it's too early to say, but I hope uh, uh, New York would probably be the better choice. See how he that?
0: David Finesse that beautifully. David Rubenstein, thank you.
7: All right. Uh, Thanks so so much. a lot. Greatly appreciate
0: it. Peer-to-peer Peer, uh, previews. He moves on with his day uh, at Carlyle uh, Group. As it airs again. tonight.
6: Tonight. Tonight on Bloomberg Television, 9 p.m. Eastern and at 6 p.m. Uh, Eastern. Yeah on uh, Friday and also over the weekend. And uh, the share, the show airs also on Bloomberg Radio uh, tomorrow night at 5 p.m. When I
0: was, Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen.